Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Friday, May 20th, 2022. And today will be better than yesterday. I'm Buster only working from my home studio in New York. Taylor Schwenk is working from his new home in the foothills of Connecticut. And Sarah Abbott is working from her place in West Hartford. Sleepless today, Sarah. Yeah, I have not slept. No. Now, and what's I, I mean, uh, you're probably, you're working on something. It's, you know, uh, some, some uh, you know, deadline coming up. What's the deal? Um, today is the day the Lord has made. It is Harry Styles' album release, Harry's House. It dropped at midnight. So naturally, I had to stay up and listen to the whole thing through once for the lyrics, once for the vibes. And then I had just so much adrenaline, I couldn't sleep. So I am currently drinking from the 48-ounce bottle a Khalifa Farms cold brew. So we are – I've never been happier, though. Like, I will, I would do this again. <laughs> Taylor, I need you to step in here and comment. This is a new side of uh, Sarah Abbott that I have not seen. We've been working closely together for several months now, and I did not know she was a massive Harry Styles fan. And uh, I certainly, even if I did know that, I would not have anticipated an all-nighter, you know, listening to the sweet sounds of Harry Styles. So, uh, very interesting move there, Sarah, as is your Yankees hat that you're sporting this morning on our Zoom. (laughs) Yes. Well, you know what? Um, Harry Styles is my Aaron Judge. So, there we go. Okay, I love that. That's what I'm going to go with um, to make this suitable for a baseball podcast. (laughs) Yeah, I'm trying to I'm trying to uh, put myself in your shoes and thinking, you know what, if the Beatles had had a reunion in the 80s when I was in my 20s, the way you are now. okay, would I have stayed up till midnight to to hear that drop? And you know what? I might have. I I absolutely might have. So I I respect the passion for Harry Styles. Yeah, you know what? His other album was great. That's what really made me a Harry Styles fan was seeing him live during that. And then my soul transcended. And now I am a Harry Styles mega fan. So <laughs> I am on a bandwagon, 100%. And I stand by it. I stand no, by it. No, you're not on a bandwagon. You sound like you're talking from the clouds, the excitement in your voice. Uh, <laughs> that's for sure. All right. We got a lot to get to today, so let's dive in. The Mets' Max Scherzer is expected to miss six to eight weeks with an oblique strain. Uh, He had an MRI the day after he pulled himself from a start against the St. Louis Cardinals on a 1-1 pitch to Albert Pujols. We saw Jeremy Hefner, the Mets' pitching coach, come back to the dugout and say, it's bad. He turned out to be right. Here was Buck Showalter uh, talking about the Scherzer injury. How do you guys kind of rebound and move forward now over the next two months without him? Uh, Very much like we did with Jake, with uh, DeGrom, and uh, like we did with Trevor May, and like we've done without James McCann and Reed Foley, and probably missing a couple that you can remind me of. But, you know, it's a great opportunity for guys like, you know, that, that we're talking about bringing in here. And, you know, got some guys that will meet us in Denver and try to hold the fort. And we got some rough estimates about when we'll start to get some of these guys back. But usually the baseball throws you another curve somewhere along the way. You just keep uh, ducking and dodging and, and see if you can get to the end game. 
So part of the reason why Buck was speaking in a glass half full manner was probably because of how the game between the Mets and the Cardinals ended on Thursday. Alonzo hammers one, left field, way back, it's long gone! The Mets win in the bottom of the 10th! Pete Alonzo drives one out against Gallegos, and the Mets finish off a series victory in 10 innings. They beat the Cardinals 7-6. That from WCBS. The Phillies' Bryce Harper was told not to throw for at least six weeks. He had a PRP injection in his right elbow on Sunday. Uh, doctors have told him, look, you just can't uh, – can't throw, but you can continue to serve as a designated hitter. The Phillies yesterday faced the San Diego Padres and you Darvish, who had his way with them. It's looking like it, considering nobody's warming in the pen right now, and he strikes out Real Muto. Fifth strikeout for Darvish, first out of the seventh inning. Well, the slider, and it's a backup slider. Waving at that is Real Muto. Uh, Darvish gave up six hits uh, while striking out the five and not allowing a run in his seven innings against the Phillies. Hot Ticket is brought to you by Vivid Seats, where you earn rewards with every purchase. Vivid Seats Rewards is your ticket to more tickets. Vivid Seats, life happens live. You know who was filling seats last night? How about Trevor's story of the Red Sox? Kirby straightens up. Here's the 2-0. Trevor drives one to left field, way back and way gone story two for two 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 run homers i'd say he's settling in at fenway park and it's four to four danny young delivers so there's a drive to left field way back a three home run game for trevor story can you believe it 12-5 red sox and they would go on to win 12 to 6. Yeah, they needed that win. And Trevor Story needed a day like that, according to MLB Random Stats. Story became only the third player since 19 to 1 to hit at least three homers, score at least five runs, and have a stolen base in the same game. He joined Yoenis Cespedes in 2015 and Eric Davis in 1986. Earlier in the day, a crazy game at Camden Yards between the Orioles and the Yankees, the two teams boomeranging back and forth. This is what happened in the bottom of the ninth inning. Pitch in. Driven down the left field line. It's in the corner. This ball is good! It's a three-run walk-off homer for Anthony Santander! And the Orioles win it! Their third walk-off win of the season. Their second one against the Yankees. And Anthony Santander awaiting a greeting from everybody at home plate. One of the Orioles had some rough comments about the restructured Camden Yards. I'll be talking about that with Carl Ravage coming up. San Diego Padres manager Bob Melvin is expected to return from prostate surgery on Friday. He'd been away from the team since May 11th. Cleveland Guardians start their baseman Jose Ramirez will undergo x-rays and other tests on his right shin after he was injured in an at-bat on Thursday. And by the way, Guardians manager Terry Francona will miss today's game while he has some minor surgery. And some interesting news from the Cardinals. They called up top prospects, Nolan Gorman, Matthew Libertor. Uh, these are two of their best prospects. Gorman's expected to start at second base in St. Louis's season opener against Pittsburgh. Taylor, what else you got? 
Buster, basket pods abound. The Celtics tied up the Eastern Conference Finals last night, uh, blowing out the heat at home. And you can be sure that the low post with Zach Lowe and the Hoop Collective with Brian Windhorst will be all over it. I'm sure they're going to have new episodes out today. But even if they don't, you should subscribe to both those podcasts. As soon as those episodes drop, they will beam magically to your phone. That's the low post with Zach Lowe and the Hoop Collective with Brian Windhorst. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11 ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with Code Baseball. That's code baseball. Visit vividseats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats, experience it live. Dogs are an important part of our lives and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you gotta check out NextGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and pyrantal chewable tablets. NextGuard Plus Chews provide one-and-done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease, plus it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NextGuard Plus Chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Used with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting preventive. All aboard. It's the Rabbit Train with Carl Rabbit. Carl Rabbit, play-by-play man for Sunday Night Baseball. This weekend, Sunday Night Baseball will be at Yankee Stadium. We've got the White Sox. We've got the Yankees. And we've got good weather, Carl. It's it's actually spring, <laughs> summertime. Almost summertime. I mean, we're sitting here in the northeast with uh, temperatures off the shore that are going to be 98, 96. I think we're starting to see a little uptick in offense. And given the lineups that we're going to see, and if you just use what we saw, you know, recently from the Yankees and certainly this White Sox little little breakout of offense with Robert having a big day. Heck, around baseball. Trevor Story had three homers. Like, There's just things that indicate warmer temperature, maybe some ball addressing, who knows. But the point is, there does seem to be an uptick in offense, which I think most people want to see. And, you know, Pete Alonso walking it off. There, there, there's just a little more offense, I think, than we saw the first month, which I think is to be expected, but it's nice to actually see it. And you're right, 90-degree 90, 90 temperatures only point towards big numbers uh opposing offenses might be nudging upward against the Mets who lose Max Scherzer for six to eight weeks uh look it's so funny to me I don't know if you feel the same way uh but when this popped up I was kind of like eh shrug you know what they'll figure it out because it's such a different context than what it's been in the past the Mets would suffer a major injury then there would be the you know the talk radio debate for six weeks. Will the Wilpons step it up? Will they go out and buy right, the right. player that they need? Carl, we know this. If there is a need, if this team has a you know hole in its rotation, if Scherzer were to have a setback, or you know Degrom were to have a setback, and they had holes in their rotation, there's no doubt they're going to fill it. 
There's no doubt they're going to fill it. Um, there is a completely different feel around this team because of ownership. There's a calmness, and if you're going to go on a uh, on a big sailboat into a storm, I think the feeling is having a guy like Showalter is going to help navigate that. Look, they, they did a great job in the offseason of building up depth and beginning of the year, spring training, Buck Showalter identified one guy on the pitching staff who's going to be key, oddly to me, it wasn't Scherzer and it wasn't DeGrom. Now, whether those were givens or not, he identified Carlos Carrasco as a key. This was in the spring, uh, obviously wow. well before Scherzer was hurt, but he said Carlos Carrasco is going to be a key here. Bassett has been really, really good. And yeah, they have they have concerns with all three of these guys now, with McGill, Scherzer, and DeGrom. But I, I'm with you. And look, I don't want anybody ever to be hurt. I certainly don't want Scherzer to be hurt. But given how they've played, given the offense they have, given Lindor seems to be back, given Marte runs around the bases, and Alonzo and Judge are in a, in a real good matchup. Jeff McNeil is like an MVP playing like an MVP candidate. No, no kidding. That there, Buster, that, that look, it's never going to be the best thing that could ever happen. But are you serious? At some point in July slash August, you might add Max Scherzer and Jacob Degrom to this team. Like that—that's what—that's what now we're kind of looking at, which is not how they want to look at the year at all. But we are possibly looking at those two coming back to a team that I—that's still very much going to be at the top of that division. I don't see them disappearing. They—they they got two guys, Carrasco and Bassett, would be. One, two, two, three starters on most staffs. Yeah, and we don't know exactly who's going to comprise the the list of uh, who's going to be on the list of starting pitchers available before the trade deadline. All you have to do is look at the the teams that are not contending at the moment and say, well, they might be sellers. For example, the Red Sox, like right. they would be a you know a Rich Hill, Nathan Avaldi, exactly. Uh, yeah, and so there there will be guys out there Cincinnati in the market. Cincinnati Reds have a pretty good picture. Luis Castillo could end up in the Mets. Right, I, I and you know what? The way they do it, and a general manager pointed this out to me last week, because of, of Cohen's aggressiveness, um, you know, he's willing to take on bad money, a bad contract in order to get a player. That was the deal they were talking about with the Padres for a couple days, where it was like, yeah, okay, you know, we'll take Chris, we'll trade for Chris Paddock, and we'll take on Eric Hosmer. That's right. not a discussion that the previous Mets <laughs> uh, regime would have even entertained. But if no. money is not a factor, and you already know you're going to be over the luxury tax, and the owner's willing to absorb the extra cost, they're going to get somebody, Carl. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that you're right about that. And the other part of the dynamic, which I think is different to your to the per, first part of your your point here is that the Mets today are 26 and 14. They have a seven game lead. The Mets during the last couple of years rarely had a seven game lead. And if they had a lead in the standings, you didn't feel as if it was going to be insurmountable for Atlanta, let alone Philadelphia. We've seen Washington play well. Like, you know, the message always from front offices is prove to us that you're worthy of adding players down down the road the Mets have proven beyond any shadow of a doubt that if we're going to suffer an injury or two we're going to supplement them because this is a legitimate World Series team this isn't well we're not are we in or are we out like they're all in and that's another part of this dynamic for 
for Cohen and for Sandy and for Buck to say, we're going to figure this out as opposed to, wow, that's a big hit on our right flank. And now we're going to take on water and we're going to bail as opposed to, um, as opposed to reinforcing the ship. And that, that's another part of this whole thing that's got to be taken into consideration. As of this morning, the Atlanta Braves, the defending National League champions, the team that I picked to win the division uh, and actually go back to the World Series, they are eight games out of first place. Uh, they're off to a slow start, 17-21. and 21. I've been you know, in contact with Braves people. They feel confident that they'll be able to get more consistency from guys in their lineup. I don't think there's any question, Carl, that they miss Freddie Freeman, not because Matt Olson's not a good player, but because the nature of, of Freddie's at bats, you know, no matter the pitcher, no matter the situation, you're always going to have Freddie, uh, you know, consistent force in the middle of that lineup. And so I think they need Acuna to come back. They need Marcelo Zuna uh, to come back. Another team sort of in that realm that we expected to do well this year, the White Sox. We'll see yeah. this weekend. They're 19 and 19, three games behind the Minnesota Twins. Right. So I, I, I'll be honest with you, Buster. I'm glad you brought them both up. I, I, those are two teams I look at because, like you, I certainly had the White Sox and the Braves um, in, in preseason predictions as teams that were going to make the playoffs. Um, you know, in, in Atlanta's case, for sure, they, they haven't had Acuna, and they haven't had guys step up. Uh, Matt Olson's been fine, and Matt Olson's going to be really good. I'm, Matt Olson dug a ball out of the dirt the other day that that whether Freddie Freeman or anyone else could do it, Matt Olson did it, and Matt Olson makes plays that few people can make. But they let they let them. They're to me, they're still hanging around, and given the expanded playoffs, they're still likely to get in because they're gonna they're gonna be better. Uh, there, there's just too like this. There really is. There's just too much talent on that team. I thought Austin Riley was going to be in the MVP conversation. The fact that they're seven out, you know, is, is a pretty decent amount, but now you have the Mets with injuries and as good as they are. And as, as we just said, as, as the holes get plugged, there's an opportunity here. You know, they're, they're, they're likely to take a little bit of a step back given where they've been in the short term. And that's good for Atlanta. The White Sox, on the other hand, are sitting here at 500. They, to me, they're like a sleeping giant. The idea that you didn't, you didn't put them away, and I don't think there's a team capable of that of that in that division to put a team like the White Sox away. But, man, if any team, to me, with getting healthy, and they've been devastated by injuries, any team that can get healthy and go on a 20-4 a and four run, it's them. Now, the Yankees have done it. The Dodgers can do it. But there's, there's the 500 team that absolutely can go off and run and end up winning, like I said, 20 of 25 games that you, you, just by letting them hang around. That's the team that I would circle and say, that's, that's the Tampa Bay of the years past. Like, I don't want to see them. I don't want to deal with them. They're going to be really good. They have great talent. They do have pitching Hendricks at the end of the, of the bullpen is very good. And if he can, if he can ever learn not to, to just, just kind of go out every single day and say I'm available, and they they are able to judiciously use him a little bit uh, down down the road. Then I, that'll serve them well. But golly, that that team is the one team I look at and be like, oh my god, they they haven't played well at all. <laughs> they haven't scored much until maybe yesterday was one of those indications things are getting better. That you let them hang around, they're still 500 and and have had all that that stuff to deal with off the field injury wise. Sign me up for the White Sox. I think that's the team. 
Yep. And their owner, Jerry Reinsdorf, very motivated. You know, he, he basically, I think his attitude in recent years has been, as we talked about with Cohen, you know, do what it takes to get the players that you need. This is their window of opportunity and they're going to try to win. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about the Yankees. Uh, you know, on our uh, Sunday night prep call yesterday, our, our producer, Andy Jacobson, asked David Cohn, about, okay, what's the hole on this team? And, yeah. you know, that conference call was at 10 o'clock, uh, as you know. And by the end of the day, I think it was pretty clear what the potential hole on the team, and that's the bullpen. A lot of concern today about Chad Green, who left yesterday's game with forearm tightness. you got to roll this Chapman. Uh, but I also feel a little bit like we're looking for warts on a team that's, you know, got a winning percentage over 700. A hundred percent. I mean, now that's been – that's been the question that I hear more often around the Yankees. And I see every Yankee game and listen to every Yankee game and listen to the network radio and listen to and watch the TV. And it's the question is like, so where's the weakness with the Yankees? Um, yesterday on our conference call, it was sort of a, the seven, eight, nine hitters. And, and I'm, you know, you look around, you're like, all right. So other than the Dodgers, Who's who has seven, eight, nine hitters that that scare you relative to the one through six hitters the Yankees have? Like, right. it, it, I can't worry about seven, eight, nine when I'm already dead because one through six has killed me. Like I'm dead. I'm already dead. I, I don't have any breath left when I'm worried. You're telling me that seven, eight, nine is a weakness. Like I, I'm, I'm sorry. And you know we we brought up was the '98 Yankees and and Cody talked about the bench and the depth and strawberry and rock rains, et cetera. And I get all that. And I, the Yankees to me have, you know, they have speed off the bench. They have a lot of those things that there currently isn't a weakness, but that doesn't mean to your point about green or others, injuries change everything. And I, I think the biggest dilemma that they have is, is the Michael King, and Clay Holmes conversation, and it's not even a weakness. It's just trying to identify how are we going to use these guys when when they are on the mound. They appear to be appear to be far more dominant than the guy who's coming in to close the games, and that's Aroldis Chapman. They have more pitches in their tool belt. They they get guys out at a at a better rate. They don't have any hard contact against them. So that, that's not a problem because it's working. And as you said, they're, they're winning, you know, 28 and losing 10. Like there's no, there is no reason to really discuss problems with the Yankees. But since that's what this business requires you to do, that's sort of the only gray area. Everything, everything else plugs in. That's a little gray to me. Like what, how does, how does this end up? Similarly, we just did the Cardinals, right? And we were wondering, when does Tommy Edmond go to shortstop? And yesterday, they started yeah. talking about Tommy Edmond's going to go to shortstop, and we're bringing up, you know, Nolan, Nolan Gorman. We're, so it's like that thing's out there. Like, does, does King or Holmes, likely Holmes, ever eventually close games, and then Chapman's role is reduced, and then you can run all sorts? Then you may be creating problems. So we're talking about things like you said. We're searching for warts where there really aren't any. I hope on the broadcast that you uh, tell the story, the the coincidental story about your longtime connection with Michael King. Uh, I also want you to retell the story uh, about uh, your conversation with Aaron Judge on the eve of the season after he turned down that massive contract extension. 
Uh, and you asked him, boy, along the lines of, boy, that was a big risk. And he just kind of gave you a grin. Yeah, he, he winked, he smiled, and he just said, we're in a good place. I'm like, there's a part of me that understands that. Like, yeah, you know, you're six, seven, you're the best hitter. Yeah, you're, you're living in a good place because of who you are, but you just, you know, allegedly turned down a massive amount of money. So it's one of these funny things about, especially this, this that level of athlete where there is almost an assuredness, barring some tragic injury that ends a career. Like Aaron Judge is going to make a ton of money. It's not, we, we, we can't get lost in, oh my God, he cost himself 300 million, barring again, a catastrophic injuries. He's going to get 200 million. He's going to get 250. He may get 300. So betting on himself is only in light of something terrible happening because when he plays, he's really, really good. That's not a, not a question about him. But when he said, with a wink and a smile, we're in a good place. I went to the place of, he knows something like there's already kind of this handshake agreement. You know, that's how I was made. That's how I took it. Like, Oh, okay. So you're in a good place. Meaning, you know, that if you produce, they're going to deliver the goods. Maybe. I, I don't know. That's how I took it. But he did see, there was a zero level of concern from Aaron judge about, about his future. Zero. Less than yeah, zero. I, Whatever less than told, zero is, that's where he was. Well, when you told me that story, I took that we're in a good place, meaning that he has that much confidence in himself. And, oh, by the way, he's made about $40 million or so in his career, which makes it easier right. to, you know, to, to bet yeah, on absolutely. himself, so to speak. Uh, I got absolutely. two more for you with two minutes to go. We got A.J. Pollock on the mic this week, and I'm really excited about that. I, I don't blame you. I've seen the story that you did with him um, about he and his uh, wife and their baby who was born prematurely. Um, you know, really well-spoken, interesting the, the way he ends up in Chicago with uh, what he, what I thought was a really valuable piece in Los Angeles um, should be a really, you know, it, it, like Harrison Bader and AJ Pollock. I'm not sure you find two, more different personalities and Bader was outstanding. I think Pollock's going to be fantastic with a microphone on. There's a, there is a story to tell there. There's a Notre Dame background. There's just a, just a grinding guy. And he's, he's had some stuff off the field, which, which is a real character guy too. in in AJ. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I think people will really enjoy listening to him. And I want to ask you about this. Trey Mancini, the longest tenure member of the Orioles, uh, agreed with what Aaron Judge said about Camden Yards and the way the outfield uh, dimensions were restructured. Mancini told the Baltimore Sun, nobody likes it. No hitters like it, myself included. Uh, Aaron Judge the other day talked about it being a travesty. It looks uh, just looks like a create a park now. Personally, yeah. Carl, when I watch the games on television, I got to tell you, I hate it because I, you know, and the major reason why, and I'm biased because I worked, that was my home office for two years when I covered the Orioles for the Baltimore Sun. It's my favorite park. And the idea that you would go and change that park, there's something offensive to me about that. It's like, you know what, let's tear down the green monster, you know, and let's put in something. And the other part, and I got to say, I'm a little cynical because of how, how deeply the Orioles have tanked in recent years. I assume that part of the reason why they did it was because of financial motivation, uh, feeling like, you know what, let's make it more difficult for hitters so we don't have to pay them 
and we'll be able to find pitching, which is what some of the small market teams have done. So I don't think it's only, you know, aesthetics that I have a problem with it, but I feel that there's some financial uh, motivation behind it as well. Well, how do you feel about it when you see it? Well, I, I think it was Aaron Boone who said it's like build a ballpark, which to me means you go into your kid's room uh, and there's a, you know, there's a Lego castle and then you go in the next day and there's a Lego racetrack and then you go in the next day and there's a Lego airplane. Like you, you, you literally could wake up on a, on a day and just move the fence depending on uh, who's pitching, depending on the lineup that's coming in town. Yankees are in town. Let's move that back 30 feet. Uh, okay, we're good. We have our best pitcher on the mound when he's healthy. We're gonna we're gonna move that in because we know they're not gonna score and it's gonna help our offense. Uh, I God, I would hate Buster to think that there is a financial motivation. I would hate to think it. Uh, I'm certainly not gonna deny that that may be at play, but that would that would really be awful. And look, I, we've had some we've had some criticisms of ballparks, in particular the team that just left uh, Baltimore. The Yankees have been, you know kind of ripped for the short porch home runs and right, yada, yada, yada. It's a minor league ballpark or little league ballpark, whatever, whatever the Rangers uh, Woodward said about it. So, you know, I think people are a little sensitive, especially in New York about ballparks, but that one is weird. I mean, there is generally a symmetry to most ballparks and the idea that you bump it out the way that you do in left field, it's, it's clear. It's literally like putting a big net to catch fish in one part of an ocean and not in any other part. And that that's that's a little strange. Um, if you're going to move it, move the move the whole dang thing. Keep, keep it symmetrical and make it impossible to hit a homer at all. But you didn't do that in right and center. And we've historically seen, and you know this, y- yards have been reconfigured. They realize it's too much. Let's bring it back in. Let's lower the wall. So maybe they address that in, in the off season. But it's it, it's a it's a odd looking building, and it certainly doesn't sit well with hitters, certainly yeah, right-handed hitters. And they messed with an absolute uh, beautiful park. You know, the the yeah. thought of Larry Lucchino, Jana Marie Smith, when they designed Camden Yards was yep. to have uh, fans close to the field. And now you've got this monstrosity out in left field, which doesn't allow that. But anyway. All right, sir. I will see you at Yankee Stadium on Sunday. Look forward to it. See you, Buster. Jumping into the numbers. This is Hembo Knows on Baseball Tonight. Hembo, of course, Paul Embiquit. He's a researcher at ESPN. He's a honcho on the show Get Up. You hear him all over the place. I quote him all, all the time when I do radio hits around the nation. Uh, Hembo, and I, I you know, don't ever want to give you credit to your face. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Buster. Look, I know when you and I get together in person, uh, I'm a little brother, and that's fine. But virtually, you're a lot kinder uh, personality, it seems. So I appreciate that very much. <laughs> All right. It's well established in the podcast. You are a Phillies fan. Here was the scene at Citizens Bank Park yesterday with Bryce Harper. Bryce Harper? Hey, you want my hat? Yay. Yeah. Give me yours. And you can have mine. How cool is that? I think that person's happy. I would think. Yeah. Yeah. How cool is that, Hembo? Bryce Harper saw a fan with a hat that he liked, and so he swapped a, a Phillies hat that he autographed, gave it to the to the fan, and, and exchanged it out. To me, it was another example of how great Harper's been since he joined the Phillies. Most definitely. There is no athlete in my lifetime, Buster, for whom I've done a, a 180 on faster than Bryce Harper. Because you, look, we, you and I did podcast hits when he was on the Nationals, and I couldn't freaking stand the guy. But it goes to show you, 
when he's wearing your laundry, when he's wearing the red pinstripes, all of a sudden your, your, your thought changes completely. I also will say, I think he has grown up a lot, embraced the city. The city has likewise embraced him back. But you know, that moment yesterday was obviously really fun and I think sort of demonstrative of the player and the person that he's become. And I'll take uh, nine more years of that to be exact. Yesterday, I tweeted out an update uh, about the number of teams that will either win or lose 100 games. As of uh, Thursday morning, six teams were on track to win 100 games. Four teams were on track to lose 100 games. What do you think? (laughs) Muster. Um, I think baseball at its best. Um, is in a state where it's, it's middle class is, is thriving. That's, I think, the state in which its ecosystem is healthiest or most robust. You have been writing about it for years. And so what I did was very simply go to the standings. And what I found really was that the number of teams that would qualify as such is really deteriorating. I used uh, different qualifiers than you did, but I got to the same place because as it stands today, there are eight teams on pace to win 60% of their games, and there are six teams on pace to win 40% or fewer of their games, 97 win pace or 97 loss pace. Plus, so that means that only 16 teams, only 53% of the league stand in between. Since expansion in 1998, there has never been a season in which fewer than 21 teams fell into those parameters. Again, right now, we're on pace for six as you've been writing about for a long time, we have created wow. a league of haves and a league of have-nots. And those extremes are becoming more and more polarized by the day, it seems. <laughs> Sound familiar? Oh, my goodness. And I just – you watch the games play out and some of the matches, uh, uh, it, it, it's maddening. Um, and mm-hmm. it's a reminder, as one agent and I were talking about last night, absolutely nothing was done <laughs> – to address mm-hmm. tanking or service time manipulation or any of that in the most recent CBA. But let's face it, there's not going to be any change during the rest of the CBA. Uh, we got Aaron Judge on Sunday Night Baseball having a monster season. Buster, 14 homers, which puts him on pace for 62. All 14 of those homers have come in the two-hole, the second spot in the batting order. So I just thought this was something fun and, and worth sharing before you guys did the game on Sunday. There's actually never been a player to hit even 50 homers in a season from that position. Like the record, if you want to call it that, is actually held by his now teammate, Giancarlo Stanton. Stanton hit 47 homers from the two-hole in 2017. And the only others to even hit 40 in a season are Eddie Matthews in 1959, Mike Trout in 2019, and Ryan Sandberg in 1990, you scan up and down baseball history, there just aren't examples of player with, players with this kind of power hitting uh, this high in the order. But I think it goes to show you that Aaron Judge is listening to his front office. He is, he is sort of um, applying the math. A lineup optimization tells you you put your best hitters as high as you can. And right now, Aaron Judge is having, at least statistically, uh, one of the great seasons a two-hole hitter ever has. And there's no obvious reason to believe he's going to slow down anytime soon. Who is your newest baseball crush? My newest baseball crush is Shane McClanahan, the 25-year-old ace of the Tampa Bay Rays buster. I'm going to say something controversial, but I believe it to be true. I think this kid has a real chance to be the hardest-throwing left-handed starter of all time. Of all time. All right. Wait, Hembo, have you ever heard of Randy Johnson? Have you ever heard of Randy Johnson? Of course I've heard of Randy Johnson. Of course I've heard of Randy Johnson, but let me retort. Okay, because in the pitch tracking era, which only goes back about 15 years, the only lefty starters to sit above 95 are Blake Snell and James Paxton. 
McClanahan's career average fastball velo is 96.5, and this year it's 96.9. Look, we don't have a way to know for sure. Obviously, Randy Johnson sat upper 90s for much of his career, but this kid is sitting 97 with a fastball, which enables all three of his off-speed pitches to play up. He's got the second-highest swing and miss rate in the sport. No one's comparing Shane McClanahan to Randy Johnson, but pitch for pitch, I wouldn't be as surprised if he is throwing as hard, if not harder, than the big unit or anyone else like him. Earlier this week, I, I wrote about how folks with other teams are speculating that circumstance uh, circumstances might compel the Nationals at some point to consider trading Juan Soto. A lot of it's built around uh, incoming ownership. Uh, you know, them at some point being forced with the question: Do you give Juan Soto the the biggest contract in North American sports history? Uh, or do you trade him? And we don't even know if Juan Soto wants to stay in Washington. You know, we haven't heard that. We just know that he turned down $350 million in an offer during the course of the offseason. You uh, texted me after that. You were like, well, if they trade Juan Soto, that would be the most significant trade of a great young player since Babe Ruth. He's pretty good. Buster, I tweeted that the other day, too, after I texted it to you, just to sort of gauge reaction. And obviously, people freaked out because Frank Robinson was traded and Miguel Cabrera was traded and any number of great players in baseball history was traded. But that's missing the forest through the trees. When you consider the fact that Juan Soto is 23 and that Juan Soto is a modern-day Ted Williams, there would be absolutely no precedent for the trade package that would be required to get him. Juan Soto just recently... uh, crossed the 500 career game threshold, at which point he had 106 homers and 401 walks. Ted Williams at the exact same point had 108 homers and 411 walks. That's the greatest hitter that ever lived, as we all know. So as far as I'm concerned, there is no precedent whatsoever for trading for a player that good, that young. And if it happened, I think you'd have to go back more than 100 years in terms of the seismic impact that it would have on the sport. So let me put you in the shoes then of the, and we don't know exactly who this is going to be, the incoming Nationals owner buys the team from the mm-hmm. Lerner family. Uh, you know, you you ask the learners to reach out to Scott Boris during this process. Uh, you know, he's the agent who represents Soto and ask him if he's willing to sign a, a long-term extension. If the answer comes back, no, he's going to go into free agency after the 2023 season or 24 season, what would your response be to that? My response would be, let's shop them around because I want to see how much, I, I yep. think I can probably replenish my entire program if the answer is definitively no. It's a lot easier to say no when a half a billion dollars is not on a piece of paper in front of you and you're 23 years old. To me, he is worth at least half, uh, half a billion dollars. I don't think that's hyperbole. This is a sure thing. This is a player who is going to be a Hall of Famer if he drops dead when he turns 30 years old. And given the way that baseball's uh, sort of economy continues to evolve, that guy's worth every penny of it. But if he says no, no matter what figure you you know throw in front of him, you can you know, sort of hit the reset button and build a dynasty with whatever you might get in return. And if the owner comes back, if the Lerner family comes back and says, yeah, he says he's not going to sign, he's going to go into free agency. If I'm the incoming owner what would your response be? Because I know what I would do. I would not want the trade of Juan Soto to be my first signature move for, uh, for, for the fan base. I would basically tell the Lerner family, sorry, as part of this deal, you're going to have to trade the guy. Does that make sense? Uh, <laughs> I would not buy the Washington Nationals. 
<laughs> if Juan Soto wanted to be traded. Like to me, it is that. Remember back when you know the 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 Marlins were dealing with that yes. whole thing, and and they and and very you know and they essentially asked uh, incoming ownership up front, like, what's the deal with Giancarlo Stanton? Keep him or trade him? To me, this is a even more fundamental question than that. Like if I'm buying the Washington Nationals, I'm keeping my prized asset, and if and if that's not an option. I'm going to look to buy another baseball team. Simple as that. Hembo, I love that comp, and I wish I had thought of it when I did radio in Baltimore, uh, in Washington this morning because you're right, you know, and my criticism of Derek Jeter at that time when he took over the team was, look, you can't go into being, uh, you know, running the Marlins and tell the fan base, don't worry, we have a great plan. It's involving trading all of our best players <laughs> because they've seen that before. And you can't, you know, it would have been a better move. I've always believed that for the Marlins' new ownership to come in and say, we're going to be different than the previous owners. We're going to keep Stanton. We're going to keep these other guys. And if you weren't able to do that, I wouldn't have wanted to buy the team. Not to mention Soto is younger. Soto is better. So the circumstance here is even more pronounced. I mean, the the Stanton circumstance in, in Florida is like a diet version of what this is. As far as I'm concerned, there is no way I'm buying the Washington Nationals. I mean, it, it, and it would make no sense in the world. I mean, you can make any analogy you want, but if you're an investor, you want to buy a property and the most valuable uh, asset that that property has is no longer going to be under your control, regardless of what you can sell it for. What's the point? What's the freaking point? All right, Hembo. Thanks for doing this. Later, man. Get out of here, Hembo. Sick of Hembo. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes. The clutch hits, the strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems, with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, 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 with nothing on your roof. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Bob Ryan is the co-author of the new book, In Scoring Position, 40 Years of a Baseball Love Affair. Uh, He wrote that along with the great historian Bill Chucky, of course, a longtime columnist for the Boston Globe. You've seen him all over television for years as well. Bob, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing very well, Buster. Great to talk to you. Uh, You know, I love the conceit you had because it really is a vehicle to tell great stories, behind the scenes stories that you, you know, collected and maybe probably haven't even written, you know, just uh, in your minds as you told story about different personalities, (laughs) different people, but you do it through this vehicle of scoring games. And so, you know, each uh, little segment is uh, framed by an image from your scorebook, correct? That is correct. I have scored every game that I've been to at every level 
uh, since the beginning of the 1977 season. Now, of course, I scored many games before that, but the hook here is that I have each of my nine scorebooks, my USBWA scorebooks, uh, totaling about somewhere between 1,400 and 1,500 games. Uh, and uh, I have literally and truly and honestly, I'll, I'll take the sodium pentothal, I'll take the lie detector test to prove that I have been covered, scored every single game, uh, whether I was covering or whether I was on vacation or wherever I was. And so that's the uh, that the, the, the book is derived from the, the, all the stuff that's involved in those square books. Yeah, you guys pick out individual games uh, and tell stories, you know, rooted in those games. I'm just curious. Uh, I, I used to do that when I was a kid growing up in Vermont, you know, score games on the, off of uh, score Red Sox games off the radio, Ned Martin and Jim Woods. What, what did, have you always liked about scoring games? I, it keeps you in the game. You know, it, it, it focuses your attention. It makes you concentrate, of course. And I just like it. And I like having the, the, the history recorded. I like it. Uh, so I can look back and, and I never dreamed that a, keeping score would lead to a book that was bill chuck's idea we can talk about that to, from, to put uh, get a book out of my books but uh i've always enjoyed it and i would honestly feel uh, mentally naked if i were to go to a game and not keep score now i'm reasonably anal i record every movie i go to uh during covid uh the, the heights of 2020 and 2021 i, I logged how many books i was reading i'm a list kind of guy <laughs> uh, and with, uh, you know, as I mentioned, each of these games, there's stories. For example, uh, you present the image of your scorebook entry from the day in 1977 when Billy Martin and Reggie Jackson had a confrontation on the field. What do you remember about that? Well, of course, that's a very famous day and a weekend in, in uh, Yankee Red Sox history, you know, that they had uh, Billy, Billy loafed on a five ball uh, and Billy, I mean, basically Reggie loafed. And, and Billy humiliated him by waiting till he went back to assume his position when the Red Sox came to bat by sending out a replacement and making him slink all the way back into the, into the dugout. Uh, clear message. And, of course, they got into a physical confrontation, uh, and it, it was well publicized uh, uh, that year. And, of course, that uh, was uh, the year of, uh, you know, so it, a lot of interesting things happened that year with the Red Sox and Yankees, I can assure you. So tell me when you you seen that play out what what was your take on it knowing Billy's volatile personality uh, but also knowing Reggie and his personality Well we were we were getting yeah as it played out Well it was just that what a what a perfect you know you know the combination the 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 uh, you know later on the famous line that came out of it you know once a born liar and yet is convicted and 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 uh kind of thing and uh you know they were they were they were a match suited not made in baseball heaven uh, that's for sure. When we all kind of wondered, you know, how it would eventually play out, and eventually it played out eventually with Billy Martin being replaced by Bob Lemon down the road, and 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 Reggie Jackson going on to have that culmination of the that season with the famous Reggie 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 Game Six, which is also one of my stories in in, in the book. You played horse against Reggie Jackson. Tell that story. <laughs> In 1986, the Globe, uh, when, when the Red Sox were going to clinch. We all knew it. The Angels were going to clinch. We all knew it. The, and the Globe sent me out to Anaheim at the, at the beginning of the last week of the season to gather information for feature stories for our preview section. And uh, one of the games, uh, Reggie, it was a Saturday afternoon. It started at 12 noon Anaheim time. Reggie hit a home run. I think it was 2 nothing. 
and and it was over in like two hours and 15 minutes. And and I didn't have to write right away. I mean, I was writing for the for the future. So I had a good relationship with Reggie. Reggie invited me to come back to his house and to see his collection of vintage cars. Now, I'm not a car guy, but I certainly wasn't going to turn down that opportunity. So after the, the frantic ride down there as he's weaving in and out of traffic and I got to follow him, not knowing where I'm going. This is long before there was any kind of a Google, Google, you know, Google map. Um, well, we arrive at his place. He shows me the, the cars and, and then he's got a backboard out there in a driveway or in a, in, in a, in a compound and, and suggests we play horse. He was a basketball guy. So we're starting to play horse and, and I'm beating him until Reggie decides, well, this is, I'm not going to lose to some damn writer. And he had a special shot. It was a spinning banker. And, um, and he started hitting that spinning banker and he finally came back. And uh, the moral of the story is that there's them and there's us and, and we ain't them. <laughs> Along those lines, cause you're of course known so much for your basketball coverage in your career. Did you ever play Larry Bird in horse? No, I never played Larry Bird. You know, I did play Don Nelson back when I was uh, in my very beginning. I did play a little one-on-one with Don Nelson. He let me score a few baskets. Uh, and I and I, and I shot around with guys. The, my, the quick Larry Bird story, you got it. Since you brought him up, I have to tell it. One night, in, uh, we, were, they were in, we were in Chicago, and it was early, early, the early, early warm-up that Larry went out to do. And I was out talking with him, and I kidded them, and I said, Larry, five bucks says you can't make a left-hand three-pointer. And, and he says, okay. So he runs into the corner. And naturally, that's a smart thing to do. Second one, swish. I hand him the $5 bill. He sticks it inside his sock. And to this day, I want to believe that he played that entire game with that sock inside, the $5 bill inside his sock, which, which would be a very Larry Bird thing to do. That is one of my favorite stories. And I knew that story, by the way. That is a famous <laughs> story. And I, I knew that story. That's awesome. Now, some of your scorebook entries are uh, uh, built around games that were pitched by Roger Clemens. And I'm curious to see if you have the, the same feeling I do about Roger uh, and everything that transpired. You know, not uh, didn't get voted in the Hall of Fame. His persona non grata. I covered him for three years when he was the, with the Yankees. And look, you know, Roger made his choices and he is where he's at because of choices that he made. So I don't feel sorry for him. But there's a part of me that's a little sad that Roger's passion for baseball, his passion for sports, isn't something that's going to be accessible at, you know, the Hall of Fame or at ballparks on a regular basis. Because this is someone who absolutely loved baseball. I I don't know. And I wanted to get your perspective on that. Do you agree or disagree? I totally agree. Uh, he he loved the game, and, and he was a true student of the game, and he was a, a, a pitching uh, maestro. Uh, um, one of the games that I have in there with the last day of uh, and, and uh, 87, and he's going for the sigh, and he knows he needs to have one more good game to go for the sigh, and it's a dank, dreary, late September Sunday against the um, uh, Brewers. And they had no chance. Uh, he, he threw a two-hitter, struck out 12, and, and they had no chance. And I wrote that the only way they were going to hit him is if it was like Eddie Fainer, who's pitching blindfolded from second base. <laughs> and and uh, that, that, that's how dominant he was that day. And uh, the other game that I, uh, cites, uh, that I cite, uh, his one hitter in the playoffs that uh, against the Mariners, I'm sure you were there. And, and, and the thing about it was that the hit was a line drive over the glove of Tino Martinez. And, and, and Tino said he actually, you could hear the ball tip the glove. It was that close to, to catching that ball. It just got over his glove. And then because he was incredibly dominant that day in, in Seattle. Oh, that was one of the best games I ever saw pitched. The number one would have been Pedro Martinez at Yankee stadium, oh. 17 strikeouts, no yep. walks. 
Uh, you know, the only base runner for the Yankees was a home run by Chili Davis, but Roger against the Mariners. And that was the game, of course, he knocked down uh, Alex Rodriguez early in the game. And then after that, Al Martin gets the only hit. Um, I knew that one of the games in your scorebook that you had to present was from that, uh, the epic Red Sox comeback in 2004 in the ALCS. Yes. Game four, uh, you note. At the end of that night, were you writing, uh, beginning to, in your own mind, write the epilogue of the Red Sox for that year? No, I, I was, I did, it just was, you're glad it wasn't a sweep and, and, and it was very dramatic, but no one could foresee what was going to happen. The idea that they had started a, what would turn out to be an eight game winning streak and that 11 days after being beaten 19 to eight, uh, uh, they were, they would be sipping the champagne in St. Louis, uh, 11 days later. Uh, the, I, uh, that game, of course, we all remember when Dave Roberts will never have to buy a drink or a meal in Boston. Uh, and, 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 uh, you know, it, but the, to me, it's the combination of the two games and I didn't have game five in there. Uh, but game five is, is rather historic too. But anyway, that has, but game four, we'll always remember. And, and for, for the sequence of events and the walk by Millar, which was unusual for Marari, Rivera at that time, the stolen base when everyone in the world knew he was going to try to steal that base. The great throw by Posada that almost got him. And, and, and of course, Derek was famous for his swipe tag, which he still probably stole 50 guys, you know, who was, who were safe and into and out, but Joe West wasn't buying it. And if you see the replay, he was safe, not by much, but he was. And then, of course, Miller hits the ball, which Mariano Rivera, who was very gracious when I talked to him about this, uh, tried to kick. He almost kicked it, and, and it went right in the center field for the, uh, for the um, you know, game-tying run. Yeah, I love Dave Roberts' uh, quote that you include when he talks about uh, on the base hit that followed that stolen base, he wasn't going to stop even if the third <laughs> base coach put up the sign. There was no doubt about it. No, I was going to say that. I'm, that you're, you're, we're very much in tune here, Buster, because I was going to point that out. <laughs> <laughs> um, you got an invitation uh, to uh, watch a game in the private box of Red Sox owner John Henry. And I'm curious about sort of, uh, you know, socially, because I've been in this situation before. Like, I'm the worst person to invite to Super Bowl parties because I actually like to watch the game. But you mm-hmm. scoring the book in John Henry's box, what kind of reaction did you get? Well, oh, he was intrigued, and, and uh, he was in a very good mood. Was, yeah, that was in 2013, which was a magical year, as you know, for them. And and uh, it was in August late. And uh, on that day, very, that very day, they made a transaction, which he was listed on. Uh, but we had dinner. My great worry was we weren't going to get the, out to see the first pitch. Uh, we were having a very nice uh Dining, you know, dining very happily, and I'm getting antsy because I want to, you know, I got the scorebook, and I, you know, I don't want to miss anything. And and uh, he was being very cavalier, and I can't quite say, uh, Mr. Henry, uh, aren't we going to go watch the game? But we did get there. Yeah, it, it all worked out. But uh, it was a it was an, uh, a very nice social evening, and so that, and one and only time, you know, I've never been invited back. But uh, it was it was a it was a fun thing to do, and it was really. And it turned out they they routed. Uh, I forget who you were playing that night, and uh, you know it was it was a very nice social occasion. Yeah, well, the memories by uh, from you and from Bill are outstanding, and I encourage people to go and and grab your book. I appreciate it, Bob. Oh, thank you so much, Buster. Anytime. Jessica Mendoza is an analyst for ESPN. Jess, how you doing today? Doing great. <laughs> Prepping for softball regionals that kick off today. Nice. Tell us about that. Yeah, we got 64 teams. Um, so similar to the men's and women's basketball bracket, you get your brackets out, start filling them out, and your mind's blown by all the different teams and smaller schools. And we're doing studio shows here at ESPN, actually, um, with the 16 sites. So it is crazy, Buster. So we're about 13 hours of coverage. 
um, from studio. So you're bouncing around to 16 different sites and, you know, you've got teams from all over the country, some that, you know, some that you're still, you haven't seen play, play all year because they're smaller schools. Um, and they start to emerge, right? These stories start to come out and they start winning games and upsets. And it's, it's one of the best weekends because we start with 64. We end up with 16, uh, by Sunday night. And, um, then we head out to super regionals and the women's college world series. Who did you pick to win the whole thing? Well, Oklahoma is definitely the beyond at the very front of the pack. Um, we've probably never seen a dominant thing like UConn women's basketball of the past, right? Like this team is just, they've only had two losses all year and they are beyond dominant in every single category. Now their ace pitcher, Jordy Ball, has been injured. Um, she's a freshman out of Nebraska and she has a forearm injury and might not be able to pitch so far. And so I think I'm not worried about her so much regionals, but as we get to super regionals, I think that could be the one thing she's just, I mean, with the swing and miss, I mean, this team puts up more home runs and offense than anybody, but as far as the flip side, they have a freshman that, and you should see her. She's so Max Scherzer. Like, I mean, literally just stomping around the mound, yelling out. And like, I mean, almost like a little crazy. <laughs> you're like, if you're in the batter's box, you're like, do I even want to face this girl right now? Um, this reminds me so much of Max. And then just goes right after you. I mean, up and in, ain't afraid to crowd you. Freshman, right? Small town Nebraska girl. Here she's come in. She's the number one pitcher in the country, but she's hurt right now. So I feel like that's the one weakness with Oklahoma. But we could see a team like Arizona State, Arkansas, who just won the SEC. I would say Vanderbilt, Buster, since that's your alma mater. But as we both know, they don't have a softball team, which is really disappointing. Yeah, and I got to say your prediction is wrong because obviously an SEC team team will win the championship. Uh, Let's talk about the White Sox who are on Sunday Night Baseball. They had, uh, you know, some some offensive emergence in the last couple days. Uh, Kim Anderson, you know, one of my favorite players to watch. He's hitting well. Luis Robert having a nice day. Yeah, you know, what I love, too, is, you know, this is a team when you look, I think sometimes you're forgetting about, you know, we've, we forget about the AL Central because they've been so quiet, have not had a team that's emerged. We expected the White Sox to be, I mean, they're a World Series contender to kind of just really take that division and walk away with it. And they're in second place behind, I think they're like three and a half games behind Minnesota right now. Um, but I was watching them last night, and you're right, Tim Anderson, first of all, <laughs> Anyone who was watching, he steals second base. And within a pitch, he steals third. He had, you know, a few hits, RBIs. I mean, he was all over the field. And they were behind against the Royals. And he literally single-handedly ignited their comeback. I mean, you could just feel, like, him stealing second. And then when he stole third, I mean, the dugout was just like, oh, <laughs> like, this, like, let's go. And then Luis, Luis Robert ended up having a two-run home run, multi-hit game. RBIs, and this is what you expect more from the White Sox, and they've just really had this tumultuous like beginning of the the season. Um, but but then you watch a game like that, and it's like you know that they're not going to be sitting at 500 come in a couple months. This is a team that has not hit their stride yet. You know, Tony Larus at the helm even last night said of all the championships that he's been a part of. They all had these seasons that were up and down and they struggled or bad starts. So this is kind of something that he's used to and able to manage through um, and not panic with a team that's this talented. Yeah, a couple guys in the middle of their lineup, Jose Abreu, Yasmani Grandal off to slow starts. Uh, some of the numbers suggest that Abreu is struggling against high-velocity fastballs. Uh, I'm really interested to see 
you know, how the Yankees pitched to him over the weekend. Uh, well, I think one of the more surprising teams, even though I don't think anybody thinks they're going to make the playoffs, but they've been surprising so far, the Diamondbacks. Um, you know, the, the fact that they are not buried at the bottom of the standings already tells you there's some progress there in part because of Zach Gallen. Yeah, watching him throw last night, and I got to see him live when I was with the Dodgers last month. And, you know, a pitcher that, you know, his stuff isn't necessarily going to wow you, like as far as, you know, he's not hitting 99 100. He's going to be around mid-90s. But he's got this cut fastball, and he's really worked to kind of utilize it on all parts in the zone. And last night I was watching him throw both sides of the plate, which is such a tough pitch. Cause you always think a cut fastball to righties is being like middle away. That's like your classic placement for that pitch. And he was coming inside with that pitch, which gives it that kind of front door gets hitters to jump just enough. And then it cuts back over the plate again, not like a ton, but enough to just make hitters pause. Like, there's no way this is a strike. And then it hits that inside quarter. Such a, I feel like, tough pitch right on right to throw consistently. He was also throwing it even up in the zone um, to get it to cut back over. So to kind of watch him last night, and he's got an ERA right now, Buster, coming into last night's game of 1.05. I get it. It's early. <laughs> we'll see these numbers be more realistic. But as we know, the reason the Diamondbacks has, have had the good start that they've had is because been because of their starting pitching. Um, and that's, I mean, I feel like been a, a huge part. We know, we both know Brent Strom who came over from the Astros, what he's done with this rotation. They got beat up the last few days um, from the Dodgers, um, which is going to happen. That ERA definitely got to a more realistic place after losing, you know, four games to the Dodgers this week, but definitely their starting pitching is their highlight with Zach Gallon at the very top. So another guy on that staff uh, is Madison Bumgarner. And yesterday, Max Scherzer went down with an injury. We still don't know uh, when and if Jacob DeGrom is going to come back this year. You know, people are wondering about, you know, how will the Mets react? Uh, and I've been thinking about Madison Bumgarner because I think the Diamondbacks probably would like to get out from underneath his contract. You know, he's got two years left. It's a very backloaded contract when uh, when he signed it. He's pitching for $23 million this year, $23 million for next year, then $14 million in 2024. That's the type of guy that's now accessible for the Mets if you don't care about cost, Jess. And I'm, I'm assuming you've seen him pitch this year. I, I, you know, I've got a chance to watch a couple of games. The one was when he was ejected after the first inning. Uh, I wonder, you know, would this be a guy where the, the Mets would say, yeah, we'll, we'll take on 60% of his money. Uh, we'll pay down that, uh, that money and then we'll get a veteran who has a lot of, uh, a lot of experience in the postseason. I mean, how do you not like that's something that the Diamondbacks are, are willing to at least look at and consider. And I think for financial reasons, why wouldn't they? And we all know that if any team in MLB right now can take that on, do it, especially with two pitchers, their star pitchers, you know, down and out right now. And the, the way that the Mets have been playing, um, you know, Madison Bumgarner is still much of this. I mean, he's lost so much of what he had as far as just, but like we, what we see with so many pitchers is how much they continue to evolve. But what I love about Madison Bumgarner is that even though he's not throwing the ball as hard as he used to, like he is still so fearless with how he attacks hitters. And that's something that I feel like, I mean, he can just will himself to win games. And 
as we see with a lot of veterans, you know, Albert Pujols going back with the Cardinals and just these these older players that have had that championship respect immediately as soon as they come into a clubhouse is then how that plays off to the rest of the team. So to have not only Bumgarner, the innings that he can fill, but watching him on the mound and then probably just having conversations amongst the other pitchers on the Mets, that's the stuff that that's worth the price. And last one, we've talked in the podcast today about Camden Yards and the restructuring of it. You know, uh, Aaron Judge criticized it, Aaron Boone criticized <laughs> it, but also Trey Mancini uh, criticized the, the new Camden Yards. I mentioned that, I, you know, there. what bothers me about it is someone who covered the Orioles for two years in that ballpark. I think it's such a, a absolutely iconic park that to me, it's almost like putting spray painting on, on some work of art. Like I hate that they cut into it. And I'm just as a, as a baseball fan, when you saw it, what did you think? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I didn't see why they needed to change it. I mean, I feel like everyone's trying to be like the new, the cool, like getting new stadiums when you're still like, wait, wasn't that just like 10 years ago that this was built. So a way to make Camden Yards, which we all remember was like the first, that was the first stadium that was like, just that new innovative, like, like really cool structure, the food, like all the things that we see now in almost every major league stadium, Camden Yards was the first to have actually just a really cool architectural stamp, which is why I love it. And I don't know, maybe I'm old school in that way is like, don't change it. (laughs) Leave it. How awesome Camden Yards. And it's still, I mean, you've talked to so many players. It's one of their favorite places to play um, because of how cool that place is and the history and, you know, I get we're trying to, you know, constantly make something different. And if we're not going to get a new stadium, how do we differentiate ourselves? Camden Yards never needed to do that. And so I think that's where I was shocked. And you're seeing the reaction from players. All right, Jess. Well, have fun. And I will talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, Buster. Bleacher Tweets. All righty, Buster. Bleacher Tweets for... A Friday, a fine Friday. First up, DGB, Debbie Gammons Brown writes in those sound bites of back to back to back to back to back. Astros homers on Wednesday's podcast was like a knife twisting in the back of Red Sox fans. Why do you hate us so much, Taylor? Um, Taylor. Oh, that was addressed to you. Yes, it was directly at me. Debbie caught on, which I appreciate, Debbie. And and Sarah, as she noted on Twitter, I, that was exactly my intent. So, uh yeah, I'm, I'm glad you noticed, and I will continue twisting the knife. Uh, I didn't really like that we had to play those Trevor Story home runs in the open, but, uh, you know, we'll move past it, and I'll continue rooting against the Red Sox. Yeah, uh, Taylor, just going to let you know, I threw you under the bus. Because she, like, Debbie reached out to me, and she's like, what's the deal? with well, that, that was a tough listen for Red Sox fans. And I'm like, don't blame me. Oh, that yeah. was all Taylor. The best part was, like, right before the segment, word for word, you said, I want this to be a knife twisting. Like, that was... <laughs> The direct quote used. <laughs> We're just having fun over here at the Baseball Tonight podcast. Oh, yeah. Katie, well, and let's face it. Taylor's an Orioles fan, and you got to find the fun where you can get it. There's very little. Yesterday was fun. I'll take that. It was sure. fun. It was yeah. a good day for, for the Orioles. Yeah. Katie Casey at Tweeter Bleats is up next. Katie writes in, do you think it's more important for Boston to extend their best player because of the long history of free agents completely choking under the pressure of Boston? Uh, I don't know about choking under the pressure of Boston, but I would say this. And and look, Carl Crawford was an example of that. But I do think that it means something that you've proven you can play in a big market. You know, Xander Bogarts has proven that. Aaron Judge has proven he can play in New York. That's not a minor thing. 
because their players are going to those big markets and they struggle. And before last night, that was Trevor Story, for example. Remember Sonny Gray being traded to the Yankees and just absolutely hating New York. So that's part of the reason why. Um, you know, I, I, I do think the Red Sox re- should revisit uh, talk uh, conversations with Bogarts. I just don't think it's going to happen. The stadium man at Tari Haina writes in, after hearing what Aaron Boone had to say about Oriole Park at Camden Yards and hearing John Sterling complain about the Create a Park all game today, what is the difference between those comments and the Little League Park comments uh, about Yankee Stadium? I think that was from the, the Rangers manager, no? Yeah, well, in Stadium Man, look, your, your point is well taken. Uh, when the Yankees structured Yankee Stadium, open Yankee Stadium in the early 1920s, they built it for Babe Ruth, <laughs> right? They wanted the short ports in right field uh, because Babe Ruth was a, a great left-handed hitter. Taylor, you heard me talking with Carl about Camden Yards and the, you know, how it was restructured. What do you think? I think it's fine. Um, I, yeah, I don't think it's like super offensive or anything. Like it's clearly a disadvantage for the Orioles and it's allowed. You can change up your stadium. Every stadium is different. Uh, I mean, it's that's just baseball. I think the the complaining about it is overblown. Let's go to Eric E at Esoteric Eric Zero. Eric writes in, hey, Buster, based on his borderline absurd career numbers, do you think Josh Hader is a lock for the Hall of Fame? I don't think he's a lock because uh, I think he still needs to put in more time. And, you know, we've seen so many relievers get hurt in recent years, um, but he's certainly on a trajectory. Um, you know, I, I think of all the, you know, the great relief pitchers through the years who pitched a lot longer than Hader has, who had to wait and wait and wait and get into the Hall of Fame. But I do think the standards are changing uh, for relief pitchers. And I don't think Hader has to necessarily pitch for 20 years, but I think he's got to get, you know, 10 to 15 years of of, uh, continued success. Last one for the week, David at Baseball Fan 1918 writes in, how quick do you think they make a trade for a starter with DeGrom, Max and McGill out follow up? Who would they target and what would they be able to offer? Yeah, David, you know, Carl and I talked about the trade market and what could happen. I'd say this, generally speaking, even though, you know, writers like uh, like myself, uh, you know, like to say, you got to be aggressive, get out in the marketplace. Generally speaking, front offices don't feel like that that's a smart play because it's like paying retail, uh, you know, on Christmas Day, knowing that the prices are going to be slashed in half within a couple of days. Um, sometimes that happens. Uh, we've seen trades from time to time in May, in early June, but I would not be surprised if the Mets uh, wait, and I think they can wait, and I think there are going to be a lot of options once we get to late July. All righty, that does it for Bleacher Tweets for the week. Hashtag Bleacher Tweets on Twitter while you're watching the game, and don't forget to subscribe to ESPN's YouTube channel because Buster and Tim's segment will be on there sometime Monday afternoon, and that is turning into must-watch internet television on Mondays. Thanks for writing in, everyone. Yep, that's it for today. That's it for this week's. My thanks to Carl, to Jess, to Hembo, to Bob Ryan, Sarah and Taylor. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And remember, hate and inequality based on skin color is something we need to fight against every single day.